Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. This is a podcast for anyone who is interested in reinventing what education is. Today on the show, we'll be discussing class jobs, as well as break times and student government in traditional schools. I'm Rob McLeod, and as always, joined by the empathetic Brendan O'Leary. How are you, Brendan? One would hope, but uh, I despair that that word is not one that's used to describe me as much as I'd like. <laughs> it's something I'm working on, Rob, but um, yeah, not too bad. Ups and downs, swings and roundabouts, apples and oranges. That sounds extremely yourself? British. I'm doing, I'm doing well. Last weekend, we had an integral meetup in Brussels. So it's something that I organize for nerds who are into integral theory. And we tested out my writing program that I've developed over the last few years that kind of uses integral theory to teach kids how to write fantastic stories. But this time, rather than promoting it as a writing workshop, we actually presented it as an intro to integral theory workshop, but we just used writing as the method to kind of show the different things like the quadrants and the stages and levels and lines. And for anyone who's not into integral, you probably have no clue what I'm rambling on about now. But uh, yeah, it was interesting. Good feedback, but we extended it to, I think it was a three hour thing. And even that it was like, oh, we needed twice as much time to do this any, any real justice, but it was interesting. It's a good feedback. I had um, some people doing work with the EU parliament, just some people who were in town for the weekend. Um, uh, yeah, a really interesting time to get to share some of that work. What have you been up to? I think that's cool that you got, you gathered a group of people that wanted to know a little bit more about how integral theory works. There's definitely a lot of good analytical tools in there that might take people a little while to get their heads around. And uh, super interesting that you were able to do it via your, your hero's journey kind of project. We haven't talked too much about that here, but that's something that's taken away in the McLeod background. And I'd really love to bring that to the podcast. Yeah, I think we'll discuss it maybe in a month's time or so, because I'm meeting up with a Belgian filmmaker at the end of this month to start creating some rough demos that might be used uh, on an online course or at least on YouTube. So once that gets a little bit closer, I'll I'll share more about that. Speaking of online learning, I'm kind of curious if you can can just share a few things with the listeners about what you've been up to in your school this past week. I know you probably can't talk too much about, obviously, with privacy and all that, what's the the specifics of your school, but I find the context you're in right now fascinating. Yeah, so as listeners probably know, I'm in Japan in Osaka, about three weeks away from spring break. So the Japanese school year finishes its spring break. We're in an international school kind of timetable. So we're more or less in the middle of our year. But because of the coronavirus, the Osaka city government have decided to shut down all schools until spring break. And so we have gone virtual. Our school has gone digital. So we're at the end of that first week of teachers attempting to teach kids using the Seesaw portfolio platform. So they're kind of giving tasks out. We're so that's an online the- platform. This is an online platform where, where teachers and students can communicate in a safe, and collaborative environment. Parents are involved as well. They get messages, they can upload work and uh, parents and teachers can feed back on kids' work. So they may wake up in the morning, the teacher may have assigned them a task to write something, draw something, make something. They would then upload that to the portfolio and the teachers would give them feedback the following day. Some classes are meeting uh, digitally as a whole class, either through video or audio and spending time together. Still trying to keep some of that collaborative nature going. Um, And then 
um, we're using platforms such as Khan Academy and a math program, iXL. We're using a Raz Kids reading program that we've spoken about on the show. And so far, considering there's more than 200 kids and um, a huge range of needs. In terms and you didn't of, have uh, time to plan for this. This wasn't like, oh, next year we're launching this project. It was like from one day to the next you heard, oh, the school's closed, but we're going to try and continue classes. Yes. So we got wind that if the number of cases continues to grow, they may close down. So Wednesday of last week, we or two weeks ago now, we started putting together the beginnings of a plan. But this was still very theoretical. And everyone's like, you know, in a, in a month or two, maybe. And then, you know, Friday afternoon, oh, yeah, we're all shutting down from Monday. So And so this has actually been the case in many schools across Asia, especially in China, for more than a month now. So we're in this really weird place where multiple schools, hundreds of thousands of children are currently going through this. And after the end of the first week, again, the teachers, parents, kids have done an absolutely awesome job of trying to communicate, trying to work together. And a lot of the feedback we're getting is, you know, about how we're being clear with our tasks, how we're being clear with our communication. And this ongoing discussion about screen time, how do we maximize the amount of high quality screen time, but still get activities where students can go and explore their house or the area around them. So these are kind of unfolding in real time. Like I said, everybody in the school is working really hard. And we've got two more weeks of that. And then we'll have a two week spring break. And then fingers crossed, the number of cases will begin to drop and we might be back in school. If not, who knows how long this experiment will continue. It's really, really interesting. I, I'm the coordinator of the school, which means that I'm in the background kind of trying to support teachers to do this, working with parents, working with some students, and just trying to make this implementation as smooth and as meaningful as possible. But yeah, it's a, an unusual situation to say the least. Shall we get into our reverse sponsorships? Yeah. Have you got one today, Rob? I do. Actually, I'm going to do a little call back to what I'd mentioned earlier, and I'm just simply going to suggest people check out the Meetup app. So this has been really helpful for me, being someone who's moved countries from Germany into Belgium. Uh, the Meetup app it sends a little crass, but it's kind of like Tinder for people who just want to hang out, who just want to meet up. And uh, the idea is there's several groups and uh, it's free to join, free to be a person. But if you want to host a group, I think it's a hundred bucks a year or something like that. So um, you can be a host and it costs a few bucks just to be an organizer. But if you want to just see what's happening in the area and almost everything on it's free, which is really cool. It's not like you're being pressured into courses or things like that. It's essentially like sort of our podcast pitch from a few weeks ago. It's like literally if there's anything you're interested in and you're in kind of any sort of urban environment, you can find some kind of activity from day hikes that are going on of people who just want to meet up and go hiking with other people to, you know, hey, let's grab a beer and discuss this book or hey, you're trying to learn a language. There's a group of us who are trying to learn. Let's meet up over here. And it's just a really interesting idea that, you know, I think years ago would have been done through classified ads or something like that. And now you can just download it on your phone and quickly get connected to a wider range of people than you might happen to bump into if you're just strolling around a town when you're new there. So yeah, meet up the app. Yeah, it is cool. When I had a look at it a while ago, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on all around the world. It's really, it's, it seems like a cool way to, to find things. And if I didn't make the education connection, it's like literally if there's something you want to learn more about, especially if you're in a major city, like, you know, I'm near Brussels here, it's tough to stump the group. There's literally like niche groups for everything you can possibly imagine. So if there's something you're wanting to learn more about, you can definitely 
definitely find it. For example, last year, there was a woman, Japanese woman, just kind of randomly teaching how to make ramen one weekend. So just went, met up with four or five other pretty cool people who wanted to learn how to make ramen and we learned how to make ramen. So it's a pretty neat way to learn new skills and, and dive deeper into some of your hobbies as well. Rock on. So this week, I've been reading the book Third Culture Kids Growing Up Among Worlds by David Pollock, Ruth Van Recken, and the late Michael Pollock. Uh, so this book's been around uh, for a long, fairly long time, and this is the third edition. And essentially, I mean, this is a very relevant topic to me as an international school educator and also as someone who has two kids who've grown up in multiple countries. And it isn't always smooth sailing. And the idea of third culture kids is that there is sometimes with, with kids who have lived in multiple countries and been raised in multiple places, there's great benefits, but there's also sometimes great challenges. So a lot of what they talk about is that you do get this sense of a kind of global community. You do get a sense of what is similar around the world, but also there's the dangers of a sense of rootlessness or grief uh, from constantly leaving things. So this is something that, as I said, is very pertinent to me, both as an educator and as a parent. And it's a really cool book. It's a fairly thick one, but it's not too difficult to read. And it really does get into the nitty gritty of how somebody raised in multiple cultures might begin to make sense of their own situation. So what was the most interesting thing you've taken from it so far? So I'm probably about a third of the way through the book. And I think the most interesting thing for me that hadn't really been on my radar too much before is this idea of the grief, the unresolved grief sometimes in in uh, adults or kids who've moved around lots of times. And I think it's really highlighted for me that trying to get to the bottom of that sense of loss is really important. But then on the flip side, what they uh, the positive that I took from that was just the idea of how deep an understanding children and adults get who have lived in multiple cultures because they get to kind of compare them on a very deep level. And again, this is something that maybe only comes out as they're going through adolescence and into, into young adulthood or even later into adulthood where they begin to try and make sense of these things. And so it's starting to help me more kind of navigate this really kind of complex issue. And it's, it's a little bit of a niche, I guess, if you're a listener who doesn't really have a connection to international education or have children who've grown up in multiple cultures, it may not be super relevant, but if if you do, I can't recommend it highly enough. It is a, is a very respected book. And uh, yeah, Third Culture Kids Growing Up Among Worlds by The Pollocks and Ruth Van Recken. So yeah. Thanks, Brennan. So let's get into today's topic. But before we do, if you're new to our podcast, you kind of need our like secret decoder ring to kind of make sense of some of what, what we will be talking about. So Brennan and I here on Reinventing Education are trying to look at education uh, as sort of like a series of different value systems, because a lot of us are ambitious to make change in education. But Brennan and I were trying to zoom out and create a bit of a map to help us skillfully and possibly wisely navigate that change. So if you're new, this in a nutshell segment is for you so that you can kind of hear where we are coming from when we're discussing education. And if you're a returning listener, you've probably heard us do this over the last 10 episodes or so. Um, perhaps you'll enjoy this like a fine wine where with age, it's getting more refined 
refined uh, and nuanced, or you're welcome to just skip the next kind of two minutes or so of, of the podcast to get into our content. Brennan, do you need anything to get you set up for your nutshell? I think I'm good to go. So what I've done over the last couple of episodes is kind of more or less read a script because there's just so much going on. And the thing you didn't mention there is we've got a little, little thing going on in the background where we're trying to refine this and get it down to a couple of minutes. Now, my feel today is by no means a couple of minutes. I think if I read it at a good speed, it might be three, three plus. But as we keep refining it, we do keep adding little bits here and there that is also making it longer. So it's getting better, it's getting longer, but uh, it's also getting shorter. So with that, let me jump into my script of, in a nutshell, reinventing education. Now we want what is best, and education is important to everyone as part of a good and healthy life. So we want the best education for all. But how? We currently see three types of schools or educational establishments, and all three are attempting to answer this question of what is the best education, but they do it through three different guiding values. First, we find a traditional school, which is based on the value of security. This is blue in the spiral dynamics model of human development of Claire Graves and John Beck, and that's what we are basing much of our thinking on. So traditional school has its roots in feudalism, the Prussian military model of the 1800s, and the early church-based schools that attempted to bring moral education education to the poor. These schools put upholding duty, self-discipline, the adherence to tradition and authority at their core. Second, we have the current mainstream schools of Europe and North America. These are the schools you might see if you just wander around a regular neighborhood. These are based on the values of opportunity, which is orange and spiral dynamic. Now, these developed in the early to mid 20th century and are much in line with the ideas of global capitalism. These schools promote ideas of meritocracy, achievement, and measurable progress. Third, we have the progressive schools, which are based on the values of inclusion, which is green in spiral dynamics. Now, these schools emerged from the likes of educationalist John Dewey in the 1930s, but especially took off in the cultural changes of the 1960s. And these are in line with the socialist philosophy. Now, these progressive schools are based on deconstructing education as we search for meaning, offering student voice and choice and empowerment, and in building critical thinking skills. Now, each of these three types of schools has a value system, and each value system has its own way of being and doing and potentially may see the other values as doing things wrong. At Reinventing Education, we believe that each value system has its own babies and bathwater. That is the things we want to keep and the things we might do well without. One generally accepted idea across all the values is that school has three main aims. And those aims might be building citizenship or morals, work and school preparation, and the development of the individual. Though each of these values may differ greatly in how they seek to achieve and define these aims and how they're prioritized them. Traditional schools may favor a moral education while the mainstream seeks to prepare people for work and the progressive school may look to grow the individual. But all three will approach these aims in some manner. Now, while few schools fit neatly into these value systems, they can be helpful to get to the root of our connections, conflicts, strengths, and weaknesses. And here on Reinventing Education, we're exploring an emerging fourth value system, one of integration, or as Stephen McIntosh calls it, post-progressive. This value system seeks to utilize the strengths of each of the three previous values to meet the needs of the individuals and the community. In this 21st century world, which we might call a, a VUCA world of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. So rather than bringing anything new to the table, this integration value seeks a flexible balance in the existing values as a way forward into an education system that truly is best for the hugely diverse needs of students today and for the future. So again, here on Reinventing Education, we believe that by 
explicitly defining the core values of school, we can hone in on our strengths and also the things that are troubling and challenging us. One of the key ways we do this is by analyzing eight aspects of education that we find in all schools and places of learning. And those eight elements are the beliefs and responses of the individuals, the shared community and culture, the observable actions and resources, that's both physical and human resources, and finally, the systems and physical or even digital environment. Now, we believe here that through honest and open, through this honest and open process, we can grow stronger in the things we already do well, and we can solve problems that are holding us back. So join us as we refine and then put into practice our beliefs and as we reinvent education. That's a long one. Kudos to you, Brennan. I like that you are in that take, reinforcing the idea that the reason we're presenting this map isn't just an intellectual exercise, but rather to help us grow stronger in the things we're already doing and solving the problems that are holding us back in terms of evolving what education is. Yeah, it, we are becoming clearer in what we're trying to do, but as we add more details, it gets a little bit harder to say it succinctly. Um, we'll keep chipping away at that idea. So today's episode, Rob, what are we talking about? Where do we start? Yeah, so our three main themes, we want to go back to this traditional school, the school that's kind of influenced and organized around the value of security. And we want to take a look at what student jobs or classroom jobs or responsibilities look like. We also want to take a peek at break times and as well student government or the notion of agency in the traditional school. So we're going to start by diving into uh, class jobs, student responsibilities, and their roles. So in every classroom that I can remember, there's some kind of class jobs board. And it might just be something as simple as like chair checker to make sure that at the end of the lesson, all the chairs are up or, you know, someone to clean up the chalkboard before the start of the day or whatnot. But whether it's one or two tasks, or I've seen classrooms where every single student has a task, there is some version of this class jobs to be found in every kind of school, traditional school, the mainstream schools and progressive schools. So in the traditional school, this kind of more old school approach, students may be assigned the tasks. And most likely this is determined or straight up given by the teacher. And mostly these are explained as a way to teach responsibility. So why do we see them show up in the traditional school? Well, the idea is that it's a duty for the kids to uphold and they are learning responsibility, a character strength by doing this. Now, they're usually very menial physical tasks, like I was saying, cleaning a chalkboard, maybe giving out papers or sweeping up the floors at the end of the class. Now, sometimes the whole group are given tasks. For example, and maybe Brennan, you can elaborate a bit more on this, but I have heard stories in the Japanese schools that there are actually no custodial staff or no cleaners. In fact, the students, it is their responsibility to keep the entire school clean. Now, a few episodes back, we did a thought experiment where we visited an imagined traditional school where everything in the school matches the security value. Now, in that school, the teacher said that they will often end up just kind of choosing some of the most reliable students. They know already who they can kind of trust as being able to uphold the duty. So they might just kind of pick Jane or Jim, who are kind of the keeners in the class as well. And teachers may also call on the same few reliable kids throughout the year, and it ends up just kind of being those responsible kids who keep doing those tasks. Now, it seems as though many of these jobs are phased out by about middle school, 
Um, we still can see them in a traditional school, but it typically tends to be something where you kind of see in kindergarten or the early years of primary school. But in addition, on occasion, class jobs can also be handed out as punishments, which seems a little bit bizarre given that they are supposed to be a positive thing where students are assigned these jobs to develop their character strengths. But essentially, if you've been fooling around, you might also be just given a few class jobs as a bit of a punishment possibly as well. So Brendan, there's kind of what school jobs look like in a traditional school. What are some of the positive things from this approach that we want to keep with us as we move forward? So the traditional school does concentrate on this idea of responsibility. And this is a way to give responsibility to students for the space they are in. And as you mentioned, in a Japanese school, in many cases, the students will clean the classroom themselves. And the idea here being that if you are taking care of the space that you're in, not only is it building you up morally as an individual and as a group member, but it also has a very practical reason because you can see that the jobs you are doing are benefiting you and the people around. So it builds responsibility in that way, in a way that everybody can see. And the belief there is that you're less likely to mess up a space that you need to clean. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know, but it's, it's definitely a belief. And so this idea of responsibility seems to run through the concept of class job. And this is one of the few places that the traditional and the mainstream and the progressive school kind of agree that giving kids these jobs to do is a good thing. But of course, as with everything, they differ in the reasons. So while the traditional school might say the positive here is teaching responsibility, the more inclusive school or the progressive school might say this is teaching us how to be a community and it's moving power away from the teacher towards the group. And the more mainstream schools where you might see this can say it helps the teacher to be more efficient. And we can also train people up so that we can show work and kind of automate the classroom environment. So, you know, it's really working at top efficiency level. So this is something everybody seems to like and most schools seem to do. And there's lots of positive reasons for doing it. But as with everything, there might be some bathwaters here. So in the traditional system, what might be some of the drawbacks of giving these class roles out to students? Well, you address the idea that what class jobs look like from the different value systems can be very different. So the, the list of class jobs in a traditional school might look different from those that we might find in a mainstream or a progressive school. And as we said, typically in the traditional school, most of the jobs that are being done are very trivial and very little actual power is being handed over to the student. So again, it's keeping a blackboard clean or handing out some papers. The actual responsibility for like learning or even their own interests in terms of the kind of duty or responsibility they're upholding is kept solely with the teacher. And the teachers, even the jobs that are decided for the classroom typically will only be coming from the teacher. There wouldn't be much student input about, you know, what jobs do we need happening in here? Uh, as well, it also just doesn't seem to actually work. Now, it's not to say that classrooms might not be kept clean and boards aren't clean, but it may not actually be teaching a lot of responsibility to the kids. Rather, it's just one more opportunity for the traditional security-minded teacher to kind of have to stay on top of the kids. And why we say this is like, in theory, kids would need fewer checks in the long term and would be able to do more jobs with less oversight. But we don't see that typically happening in a traditional school. But it seems that anecdotally, like the actions stop as soon as the authority is not pushing, checking, you know, looking over the kids, going down the list of, hey, who was supposed to clean the blackboards, this sort of 
sort of thing. So um, there's not a lot of evidence necessarily that it's really actually building this sense of duty within the kids. And one example here is like, you know, most grade nines don't even do the basic shared jobs, even though in theory, they're much older, and in theory, more capable of doing it. So for example, you could go into a traditional school and actually see like this kind of very tidy room in grade one, and that might not be mirrored as you move up further up the school. Now, it obviously just seems like common sense. This just seems like a good thing. Like, how could it be wrong to have the kids help it tidy up? It's certainly a kid sweeping the floor is better than a kid running around punching other kids and being impulsive or something like that. But there doesn't seem to be a ton of research into how much it works and whether or not it's just kind of contextual. Are the kids who are the tidy helpers in class going home and doing this? Are they actively wanting to take on these responsibilities in other contexts. So far, there's not necessarily a ton of evidence. The only thing I did see that did make its rounds on social media a year or two back was the idea of developmentally appropriate jobs for kids. And without having that directly in front of me, most of the jobs we're talking about that you'd see with grade one, grade two, grade three, grade four students, so kind of from the age of six to 10 years of age, you know, kind of things like sweeping up and all that. Like I think they were saying those are developmentally appropriate for like two to three year olds to start doing to help around the house. So even the tasks we're doing don't seem to necessarily be a a good fit for the developmental stage of where the kids are at. And yeah, I've always gone into this with the idea that it would be great if we were actually handing over power. And I understand we just said this was more in line with the progressive kind of school. Maybe I'm giving away too many of my biases here, but um, wouldn't it be great if we did actually move towards handing over more responsibility and more power to the students as they grew up? And there's some things that teachers cannot hand over because they are the experts. They are the adult in the room. There's a child protection kind of element to teaching. And there's many things that teachers are the only person in that room who really can do. But there's also many, many things that students can do. So just, you know, in my dreamer's heart, this would work beautifully if we started with younger kids and all the way up until they become young adults, we were giving them more and more responsibility, power ensuring. And I'm sure if we look at some of the uh, integration schools that we spoke to quite a while, ago now, especially Armin's, um, remind me of the name, Rob. The Integralis Tagaschule in Winterthur in Switzerland. So, you know, the conversation we had with Armin has stuck with me. And I, I believe probably the kind of school where he works is the place most likely to actually add meaning to these jobs. And so, uh, yeah, if meaning is there, awesome. If not, it's not terrible, of course. Like you say, asking a kid to do some jobs and help out, absolutely fine. And I'm sure on some kind of deeper level, it teaches some level of respect responsibility, but it doesn't seem obvious to me that this is the, the way to, this is, that is a really strong way to build responsibility. Yeah, we've, we've, we've jumped to that progressive approach to school jobs. One thing about the opportunity value as they might look at this, I give kudos to my school in terms of doing this. So one of the jobs is to water the plants. So we have some beautiful indoor house plants throughout the house and throughout some classrooms. And I believe it's the grade ones who are responsible for ensuring that the plants are watered and kudos to their teachers. They've built that into their math curriculum, that the actual schedule, the days of the week, the timing, the quantity of water, keeping track of the frequency of how often the water, that's built into like real life applications of math. And it's like, well, that makes sense when that is being used to reinforce kind of the the merit producing and your achievement and all those sorts of things. That's a cool use of it for that mainstream kind of school. It's like, well, that makes sense. But here at the traditional value, it's just much more, hey, these are some things that need to be done and you're going to do them because the teacher is not going to do everything around here. Yep. And there's something to be said for that. And also something to be said not for that. <laughs> Let's move on. Break times. 
another hot topic, but everyone seems to love break time. So I don't know if we're going to get in too much hot water with this one. We'll see where it takes us. So, you know, pretty much every school you'll ever be at, there will be times where students can go outside and play. There'll usually be a morning break, a lunchtime break, and sometimes in the afternoon. The breaks will be timetabled, mostly to allow um, kids to be supervised and, you know, staff will be on duty. In the traditional value, you may not see as many staff on duty. And certainly in some traditional schools, there isn't always an expectation for a teacher to be around all the time when students are in a classroom by themselves or even outside by themselves. But there are generally fairly strict rules about who can play where and when and the equipment that they must use. So I'm sure it's not hard to think of some of the babies of a traditional school's break times, but what might they be, Rob? Yeah, well, like obviously break time in general, I think you're going to have a hard time finding anybody who says no break time. Although if we can find that person, I'd be fascinated to find out the rationale why. In terms of this traditional school approach to break times, though, yeah, like, of course, we want free time for kids to socialize and have some unstructured play. And, you know, this is a time for imaginative play. It's also good exercise. I don't think it matters if it's a traditional school, mainstream school or progressive school. Recess is basically just a time where you see, at least in the primary school, kids just running around nonstop. Um, there is some group responsibility to self-organize and there's the navigating of, of social norms and whatnot. Um, the reinforcement that they get along better if the rules, you know, are being provided. You know, kids are figuring these sort of complex social interactions in group play together. And typically playing alone is generally frowned upon. Now, I won't go down the rabbit hole of introvert versus extrovert, but often you will see in the traditional school, if there is someone playing by themselves, the teacher on duty quite often kind of steps in as a as a catalyst here to walk over to someone and say, hey, would you mind just going to see if they want to join your game or, or see what's up with them? So there's, you know, again, one of the benefits of the traditional school is the sense of family and that we all belong here. And there's there's no outsiders if you are inside of our group. Um, what does the playground look like? Well, there's not necessarily a ton of choice beyond perhaps like a larger space with perhaps like a shed with some toys and just kind of like the typical playground equipment. So a slide, some monkey bars, that sort of thing. Um, but we kind of agree that like kids seem to like that and there isn't really an issue with that. Um, so this seems to be one where all three values agree that we need it and, and more or less it looks the same across the three probably. But O'Leary, what are a few of the bits of bathwater here from the traditional approach to break time? Yeah, again, not wanting to be a party pooper. We all love them. We all love the breaks. They do have potential drawbacks in, in, in the traditional school sometimes, especially the school begins to believe that the students are not necessarily being responsible and upholding their duty at break time. So maybe they're playing too rough or maybe they're not including people or maybe they're going to the wrong place or whatever. And there is the potential that teachers will add rules and then maybe add more rules and potentially add more and more and more rules to kind of guide or to keep students doing what the staff believe they should be doing. Now, in a, in a healthier traditional school, I guess where there are fewer issues, there may be quite a lot of freedom at this age. We did talk about uh, the kindergarten when we spoke a while back about the, the thought experiment school. And in a traditional school's kindergarten, students do get a lot of freedom. They don't really have many duties and responsibilities and they can't really break the system. Therefore, it's kind of like, you go ahead and as long as you're kind of playing nice, that might be as much as we want to impose on you at this point. And break times follow a fairly similar rule. When you start getting into that more mainstream value, you might have more organization. There might be more markings. There might be more jungle gym style things. There might be adults out there that are running games and activities. But yeah, the traditional school, other than maybe the rules in infringing on some of the fun students have, there doesn't seem to be many drawbacks. Now, they may 
might be criticized by some of the other values. It may be that, especially, in, and you said that you, there's not really many people who, who'd who say that breaks are bad. And, and I agree with this, but I have been involved in discussions and seen schools where the question is, are we giving too many breaks? Because maybe we don't want to give an afternoon break of 20 to 30 minutes because kids are going home soon and it kind of eats into learning time and it breaks up the flow of the afternoon. Now, that's a pretty contentious discussion, but there are within mainstream schools that are kind of based on this notion of progress and this notion of measurable goals. There is this kind of pushback between how much free time do we give the kids and how much time do we have inside class. Um, and then the progressive school would only really come into conflict with the traditional school in this area if they did start to impose a lot of rules. What you might see in a progressive school is a freeing up of that timetable. So you may see that students have more time to play or they can play in different ways at different times. And again, going back to kindergarten, a mainstream kindergarten now might have an 80% free choice for the kids. So if you're a six-year-old in England right now, even if the system is quite mainstream or even quite traditional, you would have a lot of choice in your breaks. And so it may be that there's some criticism as the kids get older and they kind of have fewer choices. That might be a more progressive parent or teacher might say, well, why are we actually taking away choice from kids when they get to seven? But at six, they can have 80% free time and they can go wherever they want whenever they want and then we get to seven and it suddenly bums on seats and you get 10 minutes in the afternoon so the criticisms are far less about the concept of breaks and more about how we do them and the times but um, all around I'm a big fan of breaks and I'm sure you are too Rob. Yeah and I think the only other bathwater here from a modern legal perspective is we mentioned the idea that perhaps in the traditional school there's the possibility that there are not as many staff actually watching the kids so there might actually be like a time in the day where it's like, yeah, the kids are either here in whatever the gathering area inside or they're outside. And there may only be a teacher in one of those two locations sort of being left responsible to to oversee all these kids. And, you know, I think coming from Canada or in Ontario, like we had the fear of God put into us of like, if it is your class time, if it is your duty and you are not there and something happens, your career is done. And that like fear was put in me and it, it's still there like I am I am there before the bell rings in my class at all times heaven forbid some accident some incident something happens in my room where I was supposed to be and I'm not there because I will be held accountable to the fullest letter of the law now this might be you know you get to different countries different contexts whatever and this might be different but the idea that there would be a group of kids without a teacher present in that vicinity or in that environment certainly goes against the North American American legal concerns that I was brought up with. Because if a kid does injure themselves or there's some kind of an incident, you know, behavior incident or something like that that happens and there wasn't a teacher present and you've got an upset parent, you can almost guarantee that that parent's going to use their right to turn this into a legal situation and they're going to have a pretty easy time with that. So in our modern context, I feel you can't have a space with kids without a teacher present or an adult in the vicinity in 2020. And that's it's a good point well made and it's more in the mindset then of if you are in a school so if you enter the school and it's a traditionally minded you might and still see this, like we said, depending on the legal situation in countries. And often it's quite vague. I mean, you, there may be a ratio of students to teachers, but there may not be. So it's kind of often up to the school to say, do you need four members of staff here? Are the members of staff allowed to talk together? What if they have a message on their cell phone? What should they do? What if they need to leave the playground because the 
there are there's an incident. So these are all kind of like the, the nitty gritty of this. And uh, in a mainstream school now, as you say, the answer is always going to be like, have you thought this through and made this your policy? And if you have, then you kind of covered. You know, every school will have accidents where a kid falls over, breaks their arm, and the question will be, did you have four people on duty? Were they all stationed where they could see kids? Were they all on? Okay, well, if they are, that's pretty much as far as we can go, and nobody's really got a, a case because we we did our duty of care. But the scary thing would be if you are in a traditional school with 200 kids and there's one adult there, they are. That is not possible for them to have that level of duty of care. But it still does happen in 2020. And like I said, it's very much down to the legalities of the system. And those days are gone in Britain and Canada. And I, I fully support that we want a good ratio of adults to kids. And as long as the adults, again, they're not actually getting in there too much and stopping the kids from having fun during their free times, then this is kind of the balance we need in our current world. And then the question of how much and what should they do there? Well, that's a question that each of the three different value systems would have strong opinions on. And the very last thing, I think we'll have to wrap up here and we'll get to student government next week. We alluded to this in our previous episodes when we talked about discipline in the traditional school. But in the traditional approach to education, when we look at break times, they're on the table in terms of something that could be taken away as a punishment. And we may not see that. We may, but we may not see that in the next two values within a mainstream and within a progressive school. But certainly in the traditional school, if students were misbehaving, didn't finish work, whatever the situation, and a teacher says, well, you're staying in a break to finish that work, or you're staying, you're going to miss your break because of your misbehavior disrupting our time in class, no one would bat an eyelash at that. That's totally fair game within the traditional school. Yeah. And I think in a traditional school, they probably wouldn't have to give too much of a reason. If you've done something bad, we're going to take something like we said last time. Uh, the punishment doesn't always have to fit the crime. So you did anything bad at all, we're taking your break time because you like it. You're going to feel the pain of losing your break because you did something bad. Get to the mainstream school and it would be like, we're going to take your break because you've got work to finish. And even in a progressive school, we're going to take your break while you reflect on this. Mm -hmm. And there'd be some there'd be some kind of in between in all those schools. But yeah, to lose a break is always on the table for different reasons as a punishment. Okay, so thanks for that, Rob. We dug a little bit there into those two areas of break times and class jobs and responsibilities. If you have something to say on the subject, please get in touch with us via Twitter. We'd love to know what you what you think about these subjects. How does it look in your school? And how are some of these issues being dealt with in the schools that you live and work and play in? Thanks as always, Rob McLeod. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. Bye. 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 Far more rate, more work, more work, work, more work, 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 far more, more rate, more work, far more, more rate, more work, 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 more work,